So with the real Ted Geisel, please stand up. On this Father's Day, I want to use this, this question, and I want to frame it here. Go ahead, Todd, if you will. Uh, today I want to ask if the men, will the real men please stand up? Now, wait a second. Before you jump to your, before you jump to your feet, young and old, kind of embarrass ourselves, here's the deal. Here's the question is that I want us to understand, the question is, what constitutes a real biblical man, an authentic biblical man? I think we'd want to know that. And before I stand up and say I'm one, I want to know how to define it. I want to know how to describe it. I mean, how can if I were to ask you to define it and describe it, men, you would say, well, yeah, I know what a man is. And then I'd ask you to, to define it and describe it, and likely you would go, well, it's, um, I just can't find the words. I just can't find the words. And here's the deal. How can we be what we cannot define or describe? In fact, you see the young guys around here, how can we teach them how to be something that we can't define or describe? And I'm just going to tell you that in our, in our culture, I'll pause to say this at first hour, is that it may rub some of us the wrong way. I said that after it was over. The, some of the men came by and said, no, it didn't rub us the wrong way. This is what we wanted to hear. But you're not going to hear what you normally hear on a Father's Day message because I feel so passionate about this. You see, our concept of manhood in our culture is flawed at best. Generally, it's somewhere between Archie Bunker and Raymond of Everybody Loves Raymond. Now, I just I want to be clear. God did not create us to be <clears throat> the Archie Bunker, the male chauvinist, know-it-all. Uh, he belittled his wife and kids and anybody that pushed back. He was highly bigoted. God didn't create us to be like that on the same time. He didn't create us to be like Raymond. Now, you may love everybody, love Raymond, that's fine. But he didn't create men to be and to have the, the intelligence of an adolescent who without his very perceptive wife is incapable of fulfilling even the smallest thing in life. Hear me, men, as I begin this message. God designed us in his image in His likeness, He blew into us His breath that we can be a representative of Him. And folks, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that this country, this culture, and the church desperately need some authentic, godly, spiritual, spirit-filled, biblical, real men today. Now, there have been, there have been many books written about this. I can tell you're going to be excited, all right? I, I can already determine that. But I'm, we're going to show you a couple of books that are quest, The Quest for Manhood, Men's Fraternity, Why Men Hate Going to Church, and No More Christian Nice Guy. And I'll speak about all of those probably just a little bit later. In that center book, No More Christian Nice Guy, Dr. Laura Schlesinger, a woman, writes. Go ahead and put it up there, Todd. This is her quote. 
I cannot tell you, she's a counselor, I cannot tell you how many men I've had to remind that they are men. It's not about biology, it's about strength, it's about will, honor, courage, leadership, sacrifice, compassion, and love. And brothers, particularly brothers today, young and old, until we biblically define what a man is, we have little hope of being or becoming one ourselves or developing, producing real men. Brother Evan loves to say as we talk in private, he loves to talk about the ESS when you prepare a message, the essence of a, of a sermon in a sentence. And my goal today in our message, in our time together, is that through spiritual leadership, we can define biblical manhood and set our sights on it. You see, my goal for today is to meet the need of the day is for men who clearly, completely, and even courageously understand that we are indeed made in the image of God, by the hand of God, with the divine responsibility given us by God to, to lead, to chart the course for family, for culture, for life, for church, for the world. And this morning I call every man in this room to biblical manhood. You see, on the far left, you see the quest for manhood. That's men's fraternity. In that, Bob Lewis gives us this definition, if you'll roll it forward for me, Todd. He gives us this definition. A real man is one that rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and expects a greater reward, God's reward. I'm going to let that sit there just for a second. A biblical man, I I dare say, unless you've been through this, most in here have never heard of a definition of biblical manhood. Well, now's the time. A real biblical man is one who rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and expects a greater reward, God's reward. And it's against that backdrop I want you to turn to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 22. You didn't think I was going to get to the Bible this morning, did you? Ezekiel chapter 22. We're going to read one verse, and it's on the screen. But let me tell you about Ezekiel chapter 22. (laughs) Mom and Dad, have you ever said, I'm sick and tired? Don't raise your hands. You'll be embarrassed, okay? Here's what I'm going to tell you. Chapter 22 is about God being sick and tired. Chapter 22 is about God's about to annihilate Israel. Is about to annihilate Jerusalem because of their sin, because of their disobedience. And now down, is, it's already on the screen. Now, in verse 30, this is what he says. I, which is God, I searched for a man among them who would repair the wall, who would repair the wall. And stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land so that I might not destroy it. But I found 
no one. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is my prayer today that this message, your message, will not fall on deaf ears. I pray that you will remove me from the equation. I pray that you will empower your words to strike us in places that we have not been touched in a while. I pray for every man and boy in this room. And I pray that this message will find root in our hearts and our souls. And as it finds root in our hearts and our souls, I pray that the message that you love us and you have called us for a role, you have called us to be and do what you want us to do, to serve you, to love you, to follow you, I pray that today that that will be impressed on and implanted in each heart here. In Jesus' name, amen. God was looking for a man. The walls were down. Somebody needed to stand in the gap. May I just pause to say this? If you're watching your news or you're reading your newspaper, are you aware? You have to be aware that in America the walls are down. That somebody needs to step up and stand in the gap. God was looking for His man, a courageous man, a committed man, a connected man, to stand in the gap, to literally save Israel. But He found no one. If we're going to look and be honest with ourselves about a real man, we need to look at the ultimate man. The ultimate man is none other than Jesus Christ. So what I want to do in a time that remains, I want to paint you three pictures of Jesus. You should see those in that worship guide you have if you're a note taker. If not, maybe you just write them down. I want to begin with what I'm calling the corrupt picture of Jesus. Today there are many people who have a corrupt concept of who Jesus is. And you would go, yeah, Brother Jerry, you're right. There are those that don't believe he was virgin born. There are those that don't believe he was the son of God. There are those that don't believe he raised from the dead. And you would be right. And that would be a corrupt view. But please listen. All of those views are outside the church. Those are people out there. I'm talking to you about the corrupt view of Jesus inside the church. For years, as a musician, I sang a spiritual that many people sang. It was sweet little Jesus boy that made you be born in a manger. You see, we see too many see Jesus as that sweet little baby in the manger. When he was in the manger, he was a sweet baby. Babies are sweet. But please hear me. Jesus is not still in the manger. Jesus grew into a man. Hello? And he was a real man. He was a man's man. How do I know that? Well, watch this. He was a carpenter before there were power tools. That means that he had to go to the woods and he had to cut the tree. He had then to slice the tree, if you will. And then he had to tote them back. Everything he did required his body. He was much of a man. I 
My daddy is in heaven today for a little over a year in our time. My daddy, when he worked for uh, uh, Pearl River Valley, he climbed poles before they had bucket trucks. His body was always hard as a rock. He was strong as an ox. That's how I picture Jesus. Working with that wood. You see, you see, Jesus was much of a man. But many people let refused to let him out of the manger. In, a, um, in the book, No More Christian Nice Guy, Paul Complin quotes Charles Spurgeon. Let's put that on the screen. I want you to see this. I may have to interpret it a little bit. Charles says, There has got a broad notion... Somehow, that if you become a Christian, he's talking to men, you must sink your manliness and turn milksop. I just want to leave that a second. As I say, what he's basically saying is that there is, there is a notion among common people that if you become a Christ follower, you have to divest yourself of your masculinity. And literally, in Ten Mile Creek terms, you have to become a sissy. There's also a quote in there. We're going to leave this one up here. I'm not going to put the one I'm about to give you from a lady. She said, we have efficiently parred the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. You see, folks, the corrupt picture of Jesus is that of being the ultimate nice guy, and that picture, <clears throat> that corrupt picture of Jesus tends to turn the average man off from receiving Christ. Have you ever thought about what nice means? I did a little word study on it. Nice means that you ignore. Whatever you don't like, you just ignore. You see, that's how people want to see Jesus, that he just ignored stuff. And I'm going to tell you this, not because I'm so smart, just because this is the truth. The average man in this culture is already fighting for his masculinity and the thought of him being a part of a belief system that divests him of the remainder of his, of his masculinity is not something he's going to uh, embrace. It's corrupt. And by the way, our concept of God is not much better. Oh, he's a godly man. She's a godly woman. <clears throat> what, are they, what are they saying? I don't even have to meet the person. I can close my eyes and I can tell you. If he's a godly man like she's talking about or he's talking about, that means he's very passive. That means he never pushes back on anything. He certainly wouldn't cause problems. He certainly wouldn't wouldn't, uh, say anything contrary to what you think. Godly man. All I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, if that's your concept of a godly man, you show that God to me in this book. The God of this book, He rained down fire. The God of this book, He sent a flood. The God, God of this book sent His people off in meat hooks in captivity because they were sinners. You see, the truth is, is that we serve a God whom men are created in the image of. It's been... Said, and the modern thought is that women are more spiritual than men. And we bought into the lie. We bought into the lie. There's not one verse of Scripture 
in the 66 books of this Bible that support that concept. God created the masculine heart and the feminine heart to be spiritual. The thing is, is that men express their faith differently than women. So we get our, we get our view of what is spiritual from the heart of our Lord Jesus. He's our example. Let's move away from the corrupt view. Let's move the second thing. Let's move to the correct view. The correct view of Jesus. Now I'm going to tell you, this has been a hard message to prepare. It's harder to deliver, particularly two times on a Sunday morning, because I know that there'll be some people that won't like it. There's some people that take issue with it. There's some people that want to talk about it. And that's fine. You're not going to like some of the things that I'm about to say. That's good. Here's what I'll tell you. You bring your Bible, you come to my study, or you just get along with me, and we'll talk about it. But here are the ground rules. Your opinion doesn't matter. And my opinion doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is this book. Core belief number one, the Bible is our guidebook. You see, it should fashion our concepts. It should fashion our life. It should fashion what we think. It should fashion what we do. And when you and I sit together, when we read and we learn and we study, if I need to adjust my life, I will to that word. But if you, you're going to commit. If, if we find something different than your tradition, your mama, your daddy, your grandmama, your aunt, your uncle, your tradition in the church is something different than in here than what you've been taught, then I'm going to expect you to do the same. We adjust our lives to His Word. See, Jesus was shaped. He was molded here on earth by the Word, the truth that He knew. And He, he yeah, He gave grace sometime. We'll talk about that in a second. But He never, ever compromised the truth. I'm going to give you five truths. And they're just fill in the blank if you want to follow along. First of all, Jesus was not above losing his cool over matters of significance. I want to pause here because I need to give this disclaimer. There is not a word of Scripture, men or women, there is not a word of Scripture that gives us the right to be jerks. Just not there. You won't find it. But here's what I'm going to tell you. Jesus lost his cool over matters of significance, over matters of truth. You can write this down and read it later. John 2, 13 to 17 gives a story of Jesus cleansing the temple. Now, you know what? Candidly, we don't even like the picture to think that Jesus had a whip in his hand. And those guys, it probably took Jesus being angry and a whip to celebrate those, those Jewish people from their money. And he was not swinging sweet little things like we swing at our our babies sometimes. He was getting them out of the way. You see, here's the thing. His truth was this. He said, it is written, my father's house will be called a house of prayer. Now, some people think that that, that means that we cannot, he thinks that's the same thing. What he did is clean up like when we have records or 
or CDs or books and things like that for ministries or, or, or making them available and we're selling them. That's not what was happening. You know what was happening there? That was in the Gentile court. And they were set up and the Gentiles couldn't even find a place to worship because they were setting up and doing business and blocking them out. Number two, they were sitting there and they were, they were robbing people. They were giving the wrong kind of change. They were stealing from people and Jesus got tired of it. He picked up a whip and he cleaned them out. That was Jesus. He was not above. He was not above losing his cool on matters of significance. Second, he, he was not above pointing out sins and sinners. He backed down from nobody. Did y'all hear that? He backed down to nobody. And I could, I could spend a lot of time doing this, but for the sake of time, how about just one example? Matthew 22. The entire ministerial council, the ministerial, uh, uh, association, that is the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and everybody else. They were trying their best to trap, to test, and to try Jesus with questions of doctrine. You know what he did? Go and read it. He called them things like this. Can you imagine your Jesus doing this? Blind fools, hypocrites, snakes. You see, if you study the emotion, I told first hour this, if you study the emotion that Jesus exhibited in this story, you probably would think, we don't need to pray to Jesus, we need to pray for Jesus. Because he's too angry. How was he angry and not sin? It is because, the next one, that he stood on eternal truth. Jesus always stands on eternal truth. From the time of his temptation in Matthew chapter 4, through his life, his response to everything was based on his knowledge of eternity, his knowledge of truth. Now, please listen. I asked this question to begin with. Men, what is it that you really stand on? Well, I do what my daddy did. Well, I'm going to tell you, I love my daddy more than anybody in here can love their daddy. My daddy didn't get it all right. But this book gets it all right. Well, I, I stand on the traditions of the church. Well, the church, sorry, church don't get it all right either. You know what's so sad? So many of us have never spent enough time discovering what real truth is is that our knowledge of the real truth is shaky at best. Jesus could lose his cool over truth because he knew. He had already memorized the Torah, the first five books of the the Old Testament. He studied. He prayed. He had firsthand knowledge. He had firsthand knowledge of what was right and wrong, what was good and bad, what was acceptable, what wasn't. Why? Because he read the Word because he spent time praying with the Father. Even though he knew truth, even though he could stand on truth and not sin, here's the deal. Jesus always knew when to apply grace. He always knew when to apply grace. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that he knew when to apply grace? I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you've not heard it, you might want to write it down. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve.
Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. In John chapter 3, Jesus spoke these words to Nicodemus. He said, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He went on to say, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, the, the truth is, he laid, those, he laid those points out in John 3. Now watch this. Watch, watch how this comes around. And then in John 4, well, let me just say this in the next four or five chapters, he meets two people. Two women who were deserving of judgment. Chapter 4, John, he's at the woman of the well. He meets the woman at the well. Man, I don't even know what a Baptist church would have done if they met her. She'd had five husbands, been married five times, and now she had a live-in boyfriend. If anybody deserved judgment, she did. And yet Jesus showed her grace to the point that she she did better than most of us do. She ran into town and she said, Hey, you need to come see this guy. You need to come to see a man. He told me all I... He's kind of changed me. And if that's not bad enough, scoot over to John. I think it's eight. Here, the Ministerial Association is up to their antics again. They bring this woman half-naked. They caught her in the very act of adultery. I'm not going to get any more graphic except to say that when they brought her out into the light, can you imagine? And they threw her at the feet of Jesus. She's probably trying to cover up because she's not fully clothed. And they say, Jesus, we, we found this woman in adultery. Now, first of all, Jesus knew the law. Jesus is not going to condone sin. But what would he do? He saw through the ministerial association, he knew they had a hidden agenda. They're trying to get at him more than her. And so, Scripture says, go read it this afternoon, John 8. Scripture says he got down and wrote in the dirt. Greek word there is graphene. He he just wrote in the dirt. And then he got up and he said, (laughs) He who who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And he knelt back down in the dirt, and he began to write again. Now, this time in the Greek, it's not just graphene, it's cartographing, which means he's probably writing something specific. A lot of, the, a lot of theologians think what he went, when he, built, he said that to everybody, and he went back down, and he started writing sins in the dirt. And probably because Jesus was God, he was probably writing sins of the ministerial association. But here's what the Scripture says. One by one, they begin to lead, oldest first to the youngest. And do you know why that's important? Because if somebody was going to throw a stone, the oldest person, tradition, oldest person had to pick up the stone and throw it first. And I can imagine Jesus writing that that sin of that oldest person. I'm found out. He leaves. Next oldest person, he leaves. And then everybody's gone, and he gets up and goes, where are your accusers? She goes, 
no one here left. He said, neither do I. But here's the deal. Change your ways. Change your ways. That's his message to us today. That's the message of grace to us today. Mercy, I don't want to give you what you deserve. Grace, I want to give you what you don't deserve. That's the correct picture of Jesus. The last thing I'll just say is Jesus always knew where his strength came from. Always knew where his strength came from. Man, I'm not trying to be mean. Just let me have your eyes for a second. Too often, this is where we miss the boat. We think we are man-made. We think we are self-made. And so pride gets in us. And the result is we become spiritual loners, spiritually isolated, even spiritually empty. You see, Jesus knew that his strength came from the Father because he spent enough time in prayer. Man, how long has it been since you really bowed your knees in private? Do you really bowed your knees in prayer? Isn't it interesting that the, that the Muslims have no problem getting on their knees and putting their nose on the ground to a false god? And our God who who loved us so much that he sent Jesus, and Jesus died for us, rose for us, gives us new life, and we have trouble bowing down to him. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Every time Jesus got an opportunity, he spent time in prayer. And then Mark 9, he cast out the demons, and the disciples want to know how he did that. And he said, man, it takes prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. It's life-changing. We've looked at the corrupt picture of Jesus. We've looked at the correct picture of Jesus. What I want you to see is this. Jesus is the epitome of the real, biblical, godly man. The man that we should ascribe to be. And he calls us as dads as young men, to be just like him. So to finish this message, I want us to move from the corrupt, correct, to the complete picture of Jesus. The complete picture of Jesus. Now, the truth is, is that if I were going to read some, for the sake of time I'm not, I would go to 1 Corinthians 15. For you see, in Corinthians 15, I think I got it on the screen, it speaks of the first man... The first Adam and the last Adam. It says first or last. Why do I say that? Because the question is, which one am I like? Which one are you like? So let me just take just a minute to describe them to you. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I want to remind you that God created us. I've already said this. He created Adam first. He created Adam in his image. He blew into Adam the breath of life. And then he gave him the responsibility, are you listening? The responsibility to lead. The woman was taken from the rib of Adam. Now, if we had a lot more time, I would stop right there. We'd have a little bit of fun. But he took her from the rib of Adam for the man to protect her, to watch over her, to lead her, to care for her. 
He was, he was supposed to be the leader. But here's what happened. Listen, men, don't be guilty. This is what happened in the garden. When the serpent came calling, Adam went passive. He bailed out. You know, I was taught in Sunday school that when the serpent came calling, Adam was on the other side of the garden. You better reread that. Adam was standing right there with Eve. And the serpent came, slithered in, and offered her a deal that she couldn't refuse. And he went quiet. At the time that she needed his strength, his leadership, his wisdom, and his help, he bailed out. He went passive. That's the first Adam. The last Adam. You find him pictured very well in Matthew 26. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. On the eve of the crucifixion, Jesus demonstrated manhood to the fullest. He was under emotional stress that we can't imagine. He was weakened by not eating and not drinking. And he faced the most difficult test of his life. He he was not passive. He prayed. He submitted to the Father. When Judas came, what did he do? When, when Peter took out the sword, what did he do? How was his response different from Adam's? We'll push it forward and I'll just tell you this. First, he rejected being passive. He was in the garden. He knew what was going to happen. He went there. He didn't say, Father, I'm out of here. I'm running. Ah, This is too much. He submitted to the role God had given to him. He rejected being passive. The second thing is he accepted the responsibility. His attitude was, not my will, Father, but yours be done. Is that where we are today, men? Is Is that where we are? He led courageously, number three. He led courageously because when Peter took pick up the sword and chopped the ear off, he said, Peter, put the sword away. Now's not the time. This is not the way he exercised leadership. And finally, he expected and received God's great reward. God's great reward. He instinctively knew that God's way is best. Guys, if there's anything I'm trying to communicate to us today is that God's way is best. We trust Christ. We begin our relationship with Christ. Do you know why? This will come, never become a reality in my life nor your life without a walk with Jesus that is up close, that is real, that is personal. It won't happen if our relationship to Christ is simply fellowshipping with the guys, high-fiving with our friends, having a good time, uh, playing horseshoes or basketball. All of those things can be a part of a dynamic Christian life. But it comes as we walk with Him. It must begin with that that relationship that's real, that relationship that's personal. Jesus lived and died and rose and ascended so that we can enjoy life and life to the fullest that we can be or that we can become the man God intends for us to be. We can only do that if we learn from the greatest man of all. You see, he's called us. I ask you, men, which Adam 
Which Adam? The first one or the second one? Todd, I think if you move that forward, I want to flip this last. I want to remind you, a man is one who rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and expects a greater reward. God's reward. Is that the man you are? I'll just tell you, I preached first hour, and there were some men that were really buying it and understanding this truth. And there were some men that thought it was a joke. Which one are you? As I close, no one, women or men, can leave this service and ever plead ignorance. Because whether you're a woman or a man, the message is come to know Jesus Christ in a personal way. He died for you. He died to give you life to the fullest. He died to give you everything that he wants you to have. Man, you know now that Jesus is not simply a baby in a manger. You know now that you don't have to divest yourself of your manliness to follow him completely, to bow before him uh, daily. Jesus is no longer that baby in a manger. He's now the Lamb of glory. He's the Lion of Judah. He's the one, the original one, that rejected passivity. He didn't just sit in heaven. He accepted his responsibility as he came to earth. He led courageously as he walked the streets of Nazareth and Galilee. Expected the greater reward that mankind could be saved because of what he was doing. Guys, the walls are down. I searched for a man among them. I searched for a man among them who would literally build the walls, restore the walls, and stand in the gap before the people. Who in here is up to that challenge? There's much to be done. Who wants to be a better dad? Well, I don't have anything. Yes, it does. We follow Jesus. It will make us a better person, a better dad. My prayer is, after this day, my prayer is, real men will indeed stand up and be counted for the Lord. Let's pray together.